You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you will, I want to invite you to go to Luke chapter 2 as we continue in our series on Advent. And if you missed last week or just need a reminder, the word Advent is a Latin word which simply means coming or arrival. And um, so Advent is, is a season where for 1,500 years the church has looked back and celebrating the first coming of Jesus, but also it's a time where we look forward in anticipation for the second coming of Jesus when he makes all things right. And so Advent's about many things, but it's about waiting. It's about hoping. It's about learning to live with the tension of the already not yet as we remember that Jesus alone is the one who can bring us really the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that we long for. And today, as we continue this series, we're going to look at a classic Christmas passage. It's in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 14. I want to remind you, as always, the sermon uh, notes are always available on the YouVersion Bible app. Um, that little card that's in the back of the seat in front of you, it has instructions on how to access those notes. So if that helps you, uh, you can grab those. Uh, let's stand together now out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Uh, just a reminder uh, why we do this, because uh, this is not just a book. Uh, by faith, we believe this is actually God's word to us. And so when we read it, it is as powerful as if God himself was physically in this room speaking it. So out of reverence for the fact that God is here and he is speaking now, uh, we stand. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 14. I'm reading from the NIV translation. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from a town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of Bethlehem, uh, the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you so much for... Those who are able to be here today, those who maybe even couldn't be here because of sickness or travel or wherever they may be. And and I just want to pray a a specific blessing right now over each person who can hear this, whether they're here in person or online. Um, I pray, as Luke has already prayed, that we would just be aware of your presence, um, that we would see how good and how great and how glorious and majestic and big and loving and compassionate and merciful and slow to anger that you are, that our eyes, the eyes of our heart would be open, God to know you, to behold your beauty today. We know that, Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can do that. And so we invite you right now to do what only you can do by taking this text and making it alive in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus 
I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of great Christmas movies out there. And uh, I'm going to give you the only official list, uh, the only official top five Christmas movie list that's out there, which is my list. Um, and let me just tell you right now, uh, Die Hard is not on my list for two reasons. One, it's not a Christmas movie. And two, it's not any good. So uh, just no emails, please. Um, so my wife asked me to watch that uh, two years ago, and I still regret it. So there's that. Um, Top five Christmas movies. You ready? Number five for me is a National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The cable version, of course. Uh, number four, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus. Maybe one of the greatest portrayal of Santa Claus in modern times. Tim Allen. Um, number three, Elf. Right? Uh, number two, Home Alone. Yeah. Yes. And number one, without a doubt, is the 1983 classic, the Christmas story. I got booed in the first service. This one wasn't as bad, but I could tell the enthusiasm tied down. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Christmas story, it's about a little boy named Ralphie who desperately wants a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. And so all throughout the story, all throughout the movie, he's on a quest to convince those around him that he needs a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. And so in one of the opening scenes, he sits on Santa Claus's lap, um, and he's like, if I tell Santa that I want a gun, I'll definitely get it. But what happens? He sits on Santa's lap. He freezes. Santa takes him off his lap, goes to push him down this slide. He like stops himself. He like gets kind of like jammed up in the, the slide. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I know what I want. I want a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. And uh, he's like... You know, Santa looks at him and says, what? He says, sorry, kid, you'll shoot your eye out. And so she uses his boot, taps him on the head, pushes him down the slide. Uh, a few scenes later, he goes to his teacher, Mrs. Shields. He turns in a report that outlines why he needs a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. However, though he imagined applause and she gives him an A plus. Instead, she reads it. She marks it up. He gets a C plus, And at the bottom in red, it says, you'll shoot your eye out. Um, Eventually, Christmas Day comes. Um, his mom makes him wear a pink uh, set of pink bunny pajamas that his aunt made him. Apparently, she thinks he's still like three years old, so he's having to wear this hideous outfit. Um, the neighbor's dogs eat their Christmas dinner, and we find that Ralphie is a boy whose life is marked by anything but peace, which I think is one of the reasons this is such a popular show. I think we can all relate somewhat with this uh, feeling of like we're waiting on something like that we think we need to be happy, but like oftentimes the waiting produces a stress and disappointment in our lives. And so um, here you have uh, Ralphie. Things are not going well, but in the last scene of the movie, his dad had surprised him with the Red Rider BB gun. He's laying in bed and here's what he says. Next to me in the blackness lay my oiled blue steel beauty. The greatest Christmas gift I had ever received or ever would receive. Gradually, I drifted off to sleep, pringing ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots. Despite all the stress, uh, despite getting bullied by Scott Farkas um, and getting his mouth watch, uh, washed out with soap, uh, despite having the bumpus dogs eat their Christmas dinner, Ralphie would say, this was a Christmas I would never forget. It was a Christmas where we learned what Chinese turkey is and all was right in the world. And then it pans to outside the window. The snow was gently falling and Ralphie is living in perfect peace. It's this feeling of peace we all long for. A peace that doesn't just give us a physical rest, but a deep emotional rest. 
a peace where no matter what's happening around us, we can just go, <sighs> where we can experience contentment and confidence that despite whatever happens in a fallen world, that we actually already have everything that we need. And the second week of Advent, we discover how this type of peace is possible. In the first week, remember we talked about how Jesus gives us, gives us an unshakable hope. And we've already uh, now lit the, the, the candle of peace. And we're going to talk about how Jesus now not only gives us unshakable hope, but he also gives us unshakable peace. And we're going to do so by looking back at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, where Luke begins with these very important words. He says, in those days... I love that Luke starts this way. I love that he doesn't start with in a galaxy far, far away or, or once upon a time. Instead, he starts with in those days. Why does Luke start that way? Because what he wants you to know is that the Christmas story is not a fairy tale. The Christmas story is not rooted in mythology. It's rooted in history. This is Luke's way when he says in those days. It's his way of saying that what unfolds next is a real event that took place in a real time with a real people in a real place. And so he begins by saying in those days. And then what he goes on to say is that Mary and Joseph traveled a long distance. And because they could not find a place to stay, they ended up in a Bethlehem barn where, get this, Mary gave birth to a baby that was God. Now, I say that, and we're like, duh, heard it, let's move on. But please don't miss the significance, the magnitude of this. The Virgin Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit and then gives birth to God, the Messiah, the Lord. And so the God, whom all of the heavens and earths cannot contain, would travel through the birth canal of a woman. I mean, you think about that for more than five minutes, and it literally will begin to blow your mind. The same God who created the world, who in the Old Testament would appear in things like, the, he would appear as a cloud or as, as smoke or fire. Here, he appears as a baby who would come to rescue and redeem the world. This is what Luke focuses on in the first seven verses, but then he's a great storyteller. In verse eight, he shifts from one scene to the next. So in, in verse seven, right, he's capturing a bunch of noise and pain. I don't know if you've ever been in a delivery room before. I have. There's a lot of noise, a lot of pain, a lot of groaning. Um, but then he immediately cuts from, from screaming to stillness. He cuts from the scene of, of, of Mary giving birth to these shepherds sitting quietly in a field. And what's so incredible to me about this is think about it like this. Mary knows the Messiah is here. Joseph now knows the Messiah is here, but God says, because this is news that is good news, and therefore all good news must be shared, I want to now take this out to the world, and the very first people that he decides to deliver the message to are the shepherds. And you're like, what's so incredible about that? Because if you were a first century Jew, what you would have known is that the shepherds were the very last people you would ever expect God to move towards. These are a people, guys, you have to understand, who were liars, they were thieves, they were dirty, uh, they were actually so morally corrupt that their testimony wouldn't even be considered in the court of law. Not only that, first century Jews considered them to be outside of the covenant promises of God. And so what that means is that shepherds were a people who were considered to be so dirty and so nasty and so filthy that they were a people that were beyond the grace of God. And yet, 
Of all the people God could have gone to, this is who he says, I want to deliver the Christmas story to first. These are the very people. And this is just, what this means is that the people that we are often tempted to shun, that we are tempted to isolate from and look down on are the very people that God moved towards. And it's a pattern that we see all through Jesus's ministry. I think about in Mark chapter two, where the religious, you know, kind of the pastors of the day were so upset with Jesus because, quote, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Did you realize that's one of the biggest accusations against Jesus? The reason that church people hated him is because he hung out with sinners. They're like, he can't possibly be a holy man because he hangs out with unholy people. But the reality is, listen, though Jesus clearly we know hates sin, he is famous for how well he loves the sinner. Constantly moving towards him and saying, let's eat a meal together. And I just want to say in light of that two things before we move on in our story, if you are a Christian and you want to be like Jesus, the same should be true for you. We cannot be like Jesus and not pursue the last, the least, and the lost of our society. And listen, actually begin to have them around our table and eat meals with them. You're talking about something that demands a gospel explanation. It's whenever you invite people into your sacred home and you have them eat dinner around your table. People who could never do anything for you. And so if you're a Christian, let me just encourage you, man, to begin to move towards those who are considered the outcasts of society. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what I think this story means to you is this. When we look at the Christmas story and we look at Jesus' life, the way he moves towards non-Christians is he comes with them first, not with rules, but with a relationship. When Jesus moves towards people outside of the church, towards those people, you know what I'm talking about? He doesn't come with like the Ten Commandments in one hand and a sword in the other. He comes with food and with drink. And then he says, I want to have a conversation with you around the table. Guys, despite what you have been told, that's a picture of what the Christian life looks like. It is communion with God, fellowship with God. It is about having friendship with the creator of the universe who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And so if you're here this morning, I just want to say this. If you feel like you're a not good enough, you're like, I don't even know if I'm good enough for the JV team. You feel rejected. You feel overlooked. Advent is a reminder that God sees you and he cares about you. God moves towards those who are overlooked. The people that the world pays no attention to are the very ones that God pays attention to. And so on the first Christmas morning, God sends the angel to the shepherds to deliver the good news of great joy. But notice What happens when the angel appears? Verse 9, it says, the shepherds are what? The shepherds are what? Verse 9, you can look at your own Bible. They're afraid. My my translation actually says they're they're terrified. Now, as I thought about that this past week, I thought about how, how many of us have a skewed view of angels. We think of angels and we think of like, you know, like these, these little bitty kind of cute, like squishy little things like, 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 yeah, this is the image we have of angels. And we see that, right? Like, what do we do? We're like, oh, look, it's a little angel, right? Like, look at the cute little angel, right? Like that, that's what we do. But listen, all throughout the Bible, when someone sees an angel, they're not like, look at a cute little angel. They go, ah! Because they're terrified. 
that they're afraid of what they see. They, they scream. Like this is why over and over and over in the Bible, do you know what an angel usually says when it shows up? The first thing an angel has to say to another human is, I'm not going to kill you. That's what we see here. The angels show up. The glory of God shows around them. And the angels say, don't be afraid. Why does an angel have to say, don't be afraid? Because the angels know you are clearly afraid. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That is for all people. And then look at what happens next. After this message is delivered. And by the way, that's just what an angel means. An angel literally means a messenger of God. After the, the message is delivered, verse 13, the angels do what? They begin to sing because they are so overwhelmed with joy because they know how, how significant and powerful singing is at all significant events, right? That's why we, by the way, sing at significant events. Think about a birthday, right? Or think about a Sunday gathering, right? They, they break out in song and not just does this angel sing, right? We see a choir of angels light up the sky and they birth forth uh, and praise to God through song. And here's a song they sing. Look again at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here's a song, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's a very simple song that we could all memorize and sing, but it's a very hard song to live. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Now, this is a simple song we could break down into two parts, okay? Think about it like this. Glory to God and peace on earth. And these two, listen guys, are interconnected. What I mean by that is if you get the first one right, you'll get the second one. But if you don't get the first one, you won't get the second one. In other words, if you get glory to God in the highest, peace is going to come to you. If you don't get glory to God in the highest, then you will not experience peace. They work together. So let's just talk about this for a second. The word glory comes from the Greek word doxa. And literally it means heavy or weighty. That's what the word glory means, heavy or weighty. And not in the literal sense, not like in pounds, not in literal weight. But when you think of the word glory, think of greatness. Think of grandness. Think of significance. And so this is a word we don't use a lot, but we do it a lot in our culture. And so let me just use a sports analogy uh, for a moment. On Tuesday, went and watched the Paragold Rams. Uh, have a, a young man, Gage, on, on the Parag- place with the Paragold Rams, got in our church, and uh, heard they were a good team. So I went. Uh, went with Jody Dillon, who, by the way, can we give it up for Jody and Jacob for these trees? I have failed to mention that. So um, they made those last year and then sold them to someone in the church who asked for them. And they're like, you want us to make more? I'm like, yes, we do. And they were great. Good job. Thank you, guys. So I go to the game with Jody. Uh, Tim and Savannah Parrott were there. And it was a great game. Paragold won in double overtime by 10 points. Uh, ended with a dunk. It was a nice Monster dunk. Reminded me much of myself back in the day. Um, and uh, um, the whole whole game was was fantastic. But but probably the greatest play of the game, at least to me, was the play that happened at the end of regulation where Gavin hit the three. It was probably like from 35 feet out. It felt like it was like what, what 40 feet out. Okay, so it was like a few feet in front of half court. 
he hits a three and gets fouled on the play at the buzzer, which is the play that sent the Rams into overtime, which eventually got them to win. And so uh, I come home. I'm so excited. Uh, it's about bedtime by the time I get home. And so, but I'm like, Megan, you got to watch this. So I'm showing my wife the replay on YouTube. And even on YouTube, when he gets a shot, like the crowd goes insane. Like people are going crazy. And the announcer, Jimmy Dodd Jr. is like, in all my years of announcing and on this court, that is the best shot I have ever seen. And in that moment, what is he doing? He's giving glory to Gavin. Like he, he's, he's contributing glory to him. He's saying this play carries a lot of weight. This is a significant play. This is a heavy play. This is a powerful play. And listen, that is the right and appropriate spot response to give glory to a kid like that in the context of the game. The problem is when we do that off the court. The problem is whenever we begin to turn glory inward towards ourselves, so that rather than living for the glory of God, we live for the glory of me. This is what Rich Valotas, he's a passionate author, refers to as, and I'll put this on the screen for you, a debilitating preoccupation with ourselves. That's what it means. How do you know if, we're, if, we're, if I'm turning glory inward rather than upward? We live with a debilitating preoccupation with ourselves. We become obsessed with our own life. My plans, my money, my comfort, my dreams, my, I mean, you just name it. We care more about making much of self than we do about making much of God. And according to scripture, guys, please hear me. When this happens, when we live with this debilitating preoccupation or this obsession with ourselves, we will miss out on the peace of God. You were made for the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God. I think of the Westminster Confession that was used over 400 years ago to train people. And they had this catechism, this question and answer. And they would ask this question, what is the chief end of man? And here's the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is what we see all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 43 verse 6 literally says that you were created for God's glory. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whether you eat or you drink, do all that you do for the glory of God. Why did he use those two things? Why eating and drinking? Because that's the most common, ordinary thing that we all have to do. And so he's saying, even in the mundane, ordinary, often easy to overlook stuff of life, you do even that. You eat a piece of pizza for the glory of God. This is what you were put on earth to do. Has anybody ever told you that before? This is what we were created to do. And when we fail to acknowledge this, when we begin to care more about our glory than God's glory, then we miss out on the peace and the life that we were created to experience. You know, psychologists right now say that we are living in what they call the, the age of anxiety. Anybody else heard that? The age of anxiety. And what they say is that our current uh, generation is the most anxious generation the world has ever seen. And I think part of that is because we live in the most narcissistic society the world has ever has ever seen i mean from 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 personality tests to the books we read to social media to 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 movies to music so much of what we do is about me 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 um lady gaga anybody familiar with her work um and her song applause which i heard for the first time this past week here's what she says I live for the applause, pause. I live for the applause, pause. I live for the way you cheer and scream for me. 
the applause, applause, applause. What's happening here? She's saying, see me. Look at me. Tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm special. Tell me that I'm glorious. And you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to sit here in a church seat and go, what an idiot. But are we really that much different? In 2013, the word selfie was introduced to the world. Um, I saw a stat this past week that said, for Android users, Android alone, 93 million selfies are taken a day. That's not even talking about people who have iPhones. Just Android users alone, 93 million selfies a day. And for those of you who are like, what's a selfie? Well, it's a picture of yourself taken by yourself, right? And uh, I'm not against uh, selfies, right? There I am. This is this past week. I was actually walking down Kennedy Street, which is where I grew up, took a selfie to send to my wife. You know, there I am. It's a beautiful day. Got my shades on, my earbuds, listening to the Advent Crossing playlist on Spotify. All was well. Um, actually, I had a guy who saw me with my phone taking pictures. And so if you go to the, the next shot there, I went to a Ussie. So this is Jim. Uh, good dude. And so listen, I, I'm not trying to condemn the selfie. Um, you can take that down, by the way. Um, <laughs> And so I am not trying to condemn the selfie, but here's what I want you to understand. It is in a selfie society that we fuel narcissism. Uh, it's the society that we live in today that we have been without even realizing how much it's happening. And we have been turned in on ourselves. And you know why that's a big deal? Because that's the very definition of sin. Augustine once said that to sin literally is to be turned in on self. In other words, it's to live with a debilitating preoccupation with our own lives, where we care more about our glory than we do about God's glory. And in the end, you know why this is such a problem? Because you can't carry glory. It's too heavy. You realize what glory means? It's heavy, it's weighty. Only God can carry glory. You try to carry glory and it will crush the peace right out of you. And you're like, well, well where do you get that from? Well, just think about it like this. I mean, if you make your life about the personal pursuit of pleasure and you're like, man, I just want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I want to throw restrictions to the wind. I just want to like, even if I'm disobedient to God, like I just want to to do whatever feels good to me in the moment. Well, we know what happens. You end up becoming enslaved by your desires. You become an, an addict, literally. And I would say this, whenever you pursue a life of pleasure, if that becomes your like measure for like the good life, like I just want to do whatever feels good to me, you will end up living a shallow and boring life because you'll never go deep enough. You'll never go far enough. What about popularity? We build our lives on being popular, on getting a pat on the back, on getting approval. Why is that a big deal? Well, one, you're never going to get the approval you think you need from everybody. So you're always going to feel hurt. And you know what happens when you live for the approval of others? You don't ever actually let anybody know who the real you is. Like all you do is filter and project and position yourself in such a way. And you put on this mask where people begin to maybe love the mask, but they never really love the real you. So you end up lonely. What about if you make life all about the pursuit of power, about me being successful, me achieving great things, me climbing the ladder? Well, not only will you use other people and hurt those around you so that you can get what you want, but you'll end up, you'll end up to be uh, exhausted. You'll end up burnt out. What about possessions? 
If we begin to believe, man, I live primarily uh, for my own glory. And the way that I do this is by building up my own possessions, getting more money, getting more stuff. And that's what will be the good life. Well, in the end, you'll become greedy. You'll develop a thirst that can't be quenched. You'll become discontent and empty. This is why I believe whenever Jesus teaches us to pray, think about this, as disciples, they see Jesus, they see that he's the most non-anxious human being to ever live. Jesus was at perfect peace all the time, no matter what was going on around him. And they knew that his power came through prayer. And so they said, can you teach us how to pray? And when Jesus taught them how to pray, what did he say you do? Before you ever come with a request, you come with a recognition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You come and you acknowledge the greatness of of God. I was watching the documentary 14 Peaks on Netflix yesterday. Anybody else seen that yet? Incredible. If nobody, it's not like anybody's watched it. Go check it out. It's a documentary about uh, a, a guy named Nims, I believe is his name, and um, he made it a, a goal to climb the 14 highest mountains in the world. Now, the previous record, somebody had done this before, they had climbed uh, the 14 highest mountains and they had done it all within seven years. This guy went and did it in six months and six days. It's, it's impressive. Um, just go and watch it. But as Megan and I were talking about that last night, I was like, you know, as impressive as that is, as impressive as it is to see, and that's what the whole documentary about, by the way. It's all about giving glory to this guy, worship to this guy. But I thought as amazing as he is, a guy who can climb the 14 highest mountains, how much more amazing is the God who made the 14 highest mountains? I mean, this guy can't even stand on top of a mountain without using supplemental oxygen because he can't breathe. And God breathed that mountain into existence. Guys, God is greater than we could ever imagine. He is huge. He is heavy. He is weighty. He is glorious. And so Jesus says, when you approach him, before you even say, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you give my daily bread? You say, God, how would be your name? You are the greatest. You are the treasure. You are where it is at. And why does Jesus want us to start this way? Because again, when you live for the glory of God rather than the glory of yourself, if your glory, listen to me, if your glory will go up, peace will come down. That's what Jesus wants us to see. And the peace, by the way, it has a future reality to it and it has a present reality. It has a future reality in the fact that when the peace, uh, when, the, when the angel says peace to those on earth, he, he's talking about the reality that yes, because God fulfills his promises, you can know that wherever you are right now, whatever you're feeling right now, it's not going to have the last word in your life. Depression's not going to have the last word in your life. Anxiety is not going to have the last word in your life. A dysfunctional family is not going to have the last word in your life. An absent father isn't going to have the last word in your life. Anxiety, depression, all these things, hopelessness, despair, addiction is not going to have the last word in your life. God is going to have the last word, and that word is peace. So this is about a future reality, but it's also about a present reality. So this isn't just a proclamation about, oh, great, one day over the horizon, I can have peace. But this is a declaration that is to be acclaimed today. Some of you maybe right now, you're living in such a way and you're like, man, I can't wait for this season to end. I can't wait for the pain to end, for my problems to be fixed, because then when that happens, I can have peace. And God is saying, no, 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 no. My peace is better than that. My peace is more powerful than that. You can have peace that I want to give you even in the middle of the pain. You can have a peace, Paul says, that surpasses all understanding. You can have peace in the middle of even your biggest problems.
When God sends an angel with his message of peace on earth, God's not an idiot. He knows that Herod's about to try to kill Jesus. God's not blind to that. He knows there's going to be war. He knows there's going to be conflict. He knows there's going to be abuse. He knows there's going to be relational breakdown. He knows there's going to be issues within our family. So why does he send an angel to say peace on earth when he knows that the earth will be marked by anything but peace? Because what God wants you to see and what he wants me to see today is that he has a peace that is so powerful that when you get it, you will experience peace even in the middle of your pain. That you will experience peace even when the world around you is chaotic and falling apart. This is the message delivered by the angels on Christmas Day. But notice this before we are done. Who are the people who can receive this peace? Notice who this promise of peace is for. In verse 14, look again. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth Peace to who? Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Hmm. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Well, I think that begs the question of, well, how do we become favored by God? Can't get peace if you're not favored by God. That's who gets this. So how do we get the favor of God on our lives? Got to show up here every Sunday. Is that what we got to do? Start actually tithing. Is that what we do? Get rid of that habit. Stop sinning. How do we get the favor of God? And the answer is simple. Those who are favored by God, listen to me, according to this passage, are those who simply recognize that the peace we are longing for only comes to the Messiah. That's those who get the favor of God. Those who recognize that true and unshakable peace only has one source, and it is Jesus Christ. And by the way, you're like, well, I've done that. In Vacation Bible School, 1994, thank you very much. The pastor even wrote my Bible that he baptized me on that day, so I'm good. Those who have peace are not just those who put their faith in God back then. They're those who are continuing to put their faith in God today. Those who are continuing to look to Jesus for peace today. And therefore, what I want to encourage you to do is this. Two things before we end on a very practical level will be done. If you want to experience peace, there are two things you've got to do, and I've got to do. And the first one is this. If you want an unshakable, defiant peace, no matter what's happening around you, number one, you've got to release your need for control. You have to release your need for control. You have to admit, I'm a crummy God. You have to admit, I cannot run and manage my life anymore. This is actually the first step to salvation, by the way. You have to admit, guys, listen, that you're never going to have enough knowledge or willpower or good intentions or resources to create the peace that you long to have. One of the reasons so many people have so little peace is because we are trying to play God. We are trying to put ourselves in the center of the universe. Just think about that word anxiety, by the way. I'll put this on the screen for you. What letters in the middle of anxiety? I. Which is a reminder today, listen, that when anxiety begins to creep into our lives, oftentimes it's because we're trying to run the show. 
Rather than trusting the good and sovereign God of the universe to care for us, we are trying to control the uncontrollable. And so rather than pointing glory upward, we point it inward, and we cannot carry the weight of it, so it crushes the peace right out of us. So we have to learn to give up control. Secondly and finally, I would say this. If you want to experience peace, according to this passage, you have to put your faith in Jesus. The invitation of Advent is to wait on God that means the way, another word for, for waiting on God is we have to trust in God. And specifically, we have to trust that God sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life that we could never live. To die a death on the cross, we all deserve to die for our sins and to raise from the dead. And then not only that, he ascended into the heaven and now he has sent you his very spirit. And when we learn to walk and step with the Holy Spirit, which guys, listen, I'll tell you, isn't always easy. In fact, it's often difficult. But when you learn to walk and step with the Holy Spirit, do you know what the promise from Scripture is? Do you know what fruit comes from your, or comes from that? You experience love, you experience joy, and Galatians 5 says what? When you walk and step with the Spirit, you experience peace. You experience peace. To be clear, as we end, I am not saying that if you are struggling with anxiety that you don't need medication. So don't go flush your meds if you're taking anxiety medication i'm not saying that you don't need to go see a therapist but here's what i am saying and i can say this with confidence and i've got christian therapist friends that would 100 back me up you can read every book out there you can swallow every pill you can take every personality test you can meet with all the great therapists but if you do not put your faith in jesus christ you will never have peace you might be able to numb some of your pain, but you'll never have deep, unshakable peace. And so the invitation today is to look to Jesus. One name for Jesus is Emmanuel. You may know what Emmanuel means. God with us. Guys, God is with you. He's with you in your pain. He's with you in your problems. He's with you in your loss. He's with you in your difficulty. He's with you in the darkness. And therefore, the invitation today is to stop focusing so much on I, which is in the middle of anxiety, and to focus on the great I am, on God. That's God's name for himself, by the way. To focus on Jesus and to know that his I amness can always overcome your I am notness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says it like this, and I'll put it on the screen for you. To those who find yourself afraid in darkness. Anybody find yourself afraid in darkness? Jesus says, I am the light. To those who thirst, anybody discontent, can't find, can't get no satisfaction, Jesus says, I'm the living water. To those who feel lost, I don't know where I'm going, Jesus says, I am the way. To those who are confused, what should I do? I'm the truth. To those who have been let down, who have been disappointed, I am the good shepherd. To those who need a fresh start, I am the door. To those who feel they're about to die, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. You know, another one of my favorite Christmas movies is the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And if you've ever seen it, Charlie Brown, he's walking around, and he's asking all of his friends, like, what's the meaning of Christmas? Right? And he gets the American answer. It's like, it's about getting toys, and, and, and it's about consuming, and getting gifts, and presents. And Charlie Brown's not very content with that, but eventually... Linus stands up on stage and he says, excuse me, I know the meaning of Christmas. I've got it. Here it is. And he quotes Luke chapter 2, which is the passage I just read. And then he says in verse 10, 
Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. And when he says that, you see it there in the picture, he drops his security blanket. It is a, by the way, it's the only time he drops his blanket in all the Charlie Brown comic strips or shows. It's a brilliant move by Charles Schultz because what he is saying is this. Jesus Christ is the one who alone who can separate you from your anxieties. Jesus Christ is the one who can separate you. He can loosen the grip on your false securities and in return give you the peace that you long for, which is only found in him. And when we begin to believe that, do you know what will happen? You're going to become like an angel. And what I mean by that is you're not just going to bask in peace. You're going to bring peace. You're going to bring peace with you to your work. You're going to bring peace with you to school. You're going to bring peace with you to your missional community. You're going to bring peace in your neighborhoods. You're going to bring peace on the field or in the gym. You're going to bring peace even to your enemies. As you're receiving that peace, the peace of God is going to rule in your life and it is going to spread out. And when that begins to happen, we begin to be a church that lives like that. Do you know what the outcome will be? This world will become more like the world to come, which means that Jesus and his peace will rule and reign in our hearts.